Well, I really love that passage this morning, and, and we'll get to it in the end, but I'm really excited for this morning. Of course, I'm always excited, as I always tell you. Uh, I think I just, the reason I'm so excited is I love God's words to us this morning, even Jeremiah's. But if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, as I always say, every week you've missed so much, um, starting in Advent, um, we went through the Advent season, and we talked about that Christ reveals himself in this little baby, uh, born for all to come and visit, to see. Um, but then we move into the Epiphany season. We are saying that the Christmas story is a continued story. And Epiphany is a continuation of Advent, or the Christmas story. And so Epiphany is a time where now Jesus in Advent was revealed to all the world as a baby, is, is now being revealed through Jesus. God is being revealed through Jesus to all people. And so we believe that God, through Jesus, is revealed in a real way. Thus, we have our current series, Revealed. Uh, and if you, haven't, if you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, what I would suggest is go online, catch up. I don't have time today to rehash everything that we've gone over the last three weeks. So catch up online, great place to do that. Uh, but I want to pose this question to you this morning. Have you ever thought about a time where you were doing something so right, only to find out minutes later you were... So wrong. Any of you have been there? How many of you have been in this position where you thought you were doing something completely right only to find out that what you were thought you were doing right was absolutely wrong? I was thinking back to a time where Janelle and I were dating and, and she lived in Illinois and I was in Ohio and, and she would come and visit on a, on a weekend every once in a while. And, and so, you know, we did what normal couples do when we were dating. We decided that we would mow the grass. We, we lived out in the country. I know this is kind of bizarre. We lived out in the country. At the time, we had some acreage. And that was great, and it took a couple hours to mow, and the grass was long, and my dad was at work, and I thought, well, this would be a great time uh, to do a favor for my dad. So Janelle and I decided together that we would mow the grass. And so that evening, my dad, we, we mowed the grass, and we were really proud. You know, we, we accomplished something together. It was great. thought we did my dad a favor. He came home that night, and he, he's standing at the, at, the, at the counter at the kitchen uh, sink, and he's looking out the window. Now, this was beautiful. It looked off into the woods, and it, deer would come up and eat off apple trees. It was this gorgeous little place. And he looked out the window, and um, he said, what did you do to the grass? And I looked at him, and I said, well, we mowed it. We mowed it. And he said, you didn't mow it. Mow it. He said, you ruined it. Now, you have to understand, this is so uncharacteristic of my dad. He would never say anything like this. It was so bizarre. I was shocked when he said it. Uh, my dad's kind of a quiet guy, kind of keeps his thoughts to himself. But this time he said, you ruined it. He, his grass was his baby. And, and apparently we had cut it too short. At this point, I realized that what we thought we were doing so right turned out to be so wrong. And quite frankly, uh, I was really hurt that he thought I did a terrible job, that we did a terrible job. Maybe you have had this experience where you've started a new job or you've started a new process. And if you've got a job at a good place, they obviously have, they have people who train you. Uh, and maybe in the training, they teach you what to do. And over time, you're, you think you're doing the right thing. But have you ever had your trainer come back to you and say at the end of the day, you've totally messed this whole thing up. You've wasted so much time and so much money. Maybe you were a waiter or a waitress and starting out, they were teaching you how to, how to listen and, and, and to write down the order. And maybe you thought you heard the, 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 the client there say one thing and, and you bring out the food and it's completely the wrong thing. Anybody experienced that? 
Maybe, maybe it's your political persuasion. Maybe you think for, for years you've been so right about where you stand in politics only for the debates over the last few weeks to prove you wrong. Many of you are saying, I, I don't know anymore. Uh, <laughs> I think about kids often, uh, since we have kids, but I think about teaching our kids. Often we think they're doing the right thing, and it often turns out so wrong. I was sharing a story uh, with some friends the other day, and, you know, I was thinking back to when we were teaching Carter how to potty train. And one of the things, we wanted our kid to be um, very kind and thoughtful of others. So we said, son, when you're done going to the bathroom, you need to put the seat down. And um, so he was about a year old, but he thought meant putting the seat down, that meant slamming it. And so you know you knew when Carter was going to the bathroom, because when he was done, you heard this loud bam, you know, throughout the whole house. Well, one time Janelle was gone, and uh, I was watching the kids. Imagine that. Everything goes wrong, and I'm watch, watching the kids. Carter went to the bathroom. I heard the slam of the seat. and But accompanying that, I heard this loud scream, shrill, and cry all at once. And you can only imagine. Carter slammed himself in between the, the toilet seat and the toilet. He was just the right height. I felt so bad for him. And what he thought he was doing right by putting the seat down, apparently it was so, so wrong. That poor kid. I say all that to say that I think in the church, I think of the church, there comes a time where we think we are so right. That we have this church and Jesus thing down. But then Jesus comes along in scripture and he has a way of kind of just messing up the whole shebang and telling us, you've got it all wrong. Some of you, if you're not surprised by what Jesus has to say weekly, I don't know if we're reading the same story, but... But this week is one of those, and so I want you to to turn to Luke with me, to Luke 4, and we're going to be in verse 22. Now, last week, we started in Luke 4, 14, and we read to verse 21. I don't know why the lectionary split the passages. I think to maybe build some excitement and anticipation for this week. Uh, Usually, I will read the whole passage together, but, but I want to leave off where we started last week. It says this, All spoke well of him. And we're amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what you, what we have heard that you have did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that you were... <laughs> I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of the Israelites but to the widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet not one of the Israelites was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard of this. They got up, they drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Now, I love this part because Jesus, he is a smooth human being. And God, he says, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. I love that. I don't know why. I just envisioned it just... Whatever, get out of my way. Here we go. So I love what what Luke has to, to say to us today. If you had missed last week, 
Here's what you missed. In the beginning of the passage, we, we connected these two ideas, Galilee and Spirit, together to say this, that God is doing a new thing. That Galilee literally means circle. And it was encircled by different nations and different people who didn't speak the same languages or serve the same gods. And so this, 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 this Galilee area was kind of this progressive area. They, they had a disposition towards change. They, they loved new ideas and new thoughts. And so Jesus chose this very place to kindle his ministry, to start his ministry, Galilee. And we connected that thought with spirit, that, that spirit often takes us back to the beginning where we hear this word ruach, this breath of God, the breath of God that creates the world. Jesus said, the spirit is upon me. So the same spirit, that the breath that creates the world is now in Jesus and his teaching. And we, and we said this, that that same spirit is in the church today. It may not be evident at times, but it's supposed to be at least. And so Jesus doing the new thing, sits down and he reads from the prophet Isaiah and he says this, he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. I love this conditional statement. Because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. The spirit is upon me because I am speaking and teaching and giving hope to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of the sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Gives a scroll to the guy and sits back down. I love it. But you have to hear it in light of the Jewish people. This language is taking them back to the Exodus and throughout years and years of history where they were the oppressed people. They were the slaves. They were the blind. They were this mighty, this tiny, tiny, tiny country, these tiny, tiny people that really had no power, but yet God chose them over all. So people are hearing this language and they're beginning to think that, yes, finally God has come to save the right people. And yet Jesus quickly reveals to us today that, no, He has come to save all the wrong people. <laughs> One of the distinctives about Luke's writing is the, the constant tension between the, the Jew and Gentile relationship. You have to understand that, that what Jesus is saying today is a total rejection of the Judaism tenet. That, that the covenant that God made with them, this is completely contrary to what he said in terms of the salvation. And so the Jews were so sure that they were God's people that, that they despised all others. Now this is how much they despised him. Hear this. The Jews thought that they were God's people so much so that all the Gentiles were kindling fuel for the fires of hell. That was their belief. That the Gentile people were a bunch of nobodies except for good for throwing them in the fires of hell. And so Jesus, this carpenter, noticed somebody asked him, isn't he that carpenter guy? You know, Jesus comes out with this, this new message and, and, and paints a picture of what life could be like, not just for the Jew, but for all people. There were many Gospels that talked about God coming and overthrowing these wicked nations, destroying them and, and, and just throwing them away and throwing them, as I said, to the pits of hell. But instead, Jesus points out that, as the prophets often do, that Israel doesn't benefit from God's grace. It's the Gentile and the pagan. 
It would be like this. I love what N.T. Wright says in his commentary. He says this, that it would be like in World War II, people from Britain and France, somebody going around in, in Britain and France and saying that God's salvation is for Hitler. I think about our day. It would be like one of us going around saying, God's salvation is for Osama bin Laden or Saddam Hussein. Now, I truly believe that God's salvation is for them. And there's still hope for them in some way. Now, that's a whole different topic. We're not going to go there. But, but this is the point. Israel's God is rescuing all the wrong people. And they are completely, completely upset. Now, here's the underlying problem. For years, the church and the Israelites have been attempting to induct and include all of the right people. We see this in the beginning of Exodus when, when these people come out of Egypt. We see that, notice that, that the people leaving weren't just the Israelites. There was a, quote, a mixed group. Now, if you remember back to the fall, we talked about this group. That in the camps, the people who were not the Israelites were the ones who were on the perimeter. They were kind of the mischief people. And we said that it was kind of the responsibility of the Israelites. They kind of left them out there. They never, they never invested in them. They never loved them. They never accepted them as part of the community. But this was a mixed group heading out of the Exodus. But it's interesting. As they, as they head out, they begin, the, the, the natural tendency is to shape some sort of community. The interesting thing is the Egyptians for years wanted to segregate the Egyptians from the Israelites, that they would never eat together, they'd never mix together. And so quickly we see that the Israelites kind of take, once again, that culture, that identity, and they they assume that. And the key for them is membership. Who's in, who's out? Who are we going to include? Who are we not going to include? And so from the very beginning, we see that purity... Or priestly holiness is essential to that. That the Levitical law was, was a way that they kept, they kept themselves pure. And anybody who could not keep those laws, they weren't welcome. Because they, they, they posed a threat to the security of the community. But one of the other things that I love about God's covenant with his Israelite people is this, is that at the heart of his covenant, not only was it purity, but it was justice. So here are these two themes, purity and justice, purity and justice. And so for them, following the, the Levitical law was a way that we kept purity within the community, but, but also that we, as God's people, have a responsibility to the widow, the foreigner, the oppressed, and the poor. You see that theme over and over and over again in the Scriptures. In fact, if you go on our website, you'll find that that is the verse that kind of drives our mission, as we are for the marginalized and the poor. But here's the problem. And this is what the prophets completely, this is what the prophets consistently talk to the Israelite people about. For them, purity takes priority over justice. For them, purity takes priority over justice. Over time, justice is sort of a secondary thing. But, but, but God says to his people in Deuteronomy, he says, you must not distort justice. Justice and only justice you shall pursue so that you may live in the land God is giving you. They sort of, we see in Amos that they kind of make their living off the backs of the poor. That they, these religious festivals that, that they were having, they thought they were doing such wonderful things for God. Meanwhile, they were oppressing those who needed him the most. And so Moses in, in Deuteronomy, 
begins to explain the exclusions for membership or the inclusions for membership. Here's what he says. This is in Deuteronomy 23. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden marriage nor any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Not even the tenth generation. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Not even the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Bear, for Pethor and Aram to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. But turn the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Now, listen to this. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. This is the law. Moses categorizes two people in particular. Two people that aren't welcome to be part of members of the community. Now, hear this. Now, if you don't like this language... Talk to Moses about it. Uh, he's the one that wrote it. Uh, but, but Moses excludes those with distorted genitalia. As, this, as if to say this, that those who have good functioning genitalia are the ones that are included in membership because they can continue community. It is the holy seed that continues community. Notice that he also excludes those who have been born outside of marriage. As, as Walter Brueggemann says in his book, the bastards are not welcome in, into the community. They're excluded from membership. And so we see from the very beginning that those that have improper sexual relationships are not welcomed into the community of the Israelites. Now notice the second group that's excluded from the community. It's the foreigners. It's the people that, that aren't Israelites. that are un, They're unwelcome to be part of, part of God's community here. But listen to this. And this is just my thought. You don't have to like it, but I kind of do because well, I wrote it. So, But I think this, that God moves in different ways at different times with different people. That God starts out here, and he may appear as this God here, but as we move through history and as God reveals himself to his people, he begins to move in his people in a different way at a different time. And so what we may see with God and what we see in the laws back here may not be what we see in Jesus or in any of the prophets. And so I want you to listen to what Isaiah says, because Isaiah is writing to people who are coming out of Babylon. These are the, they're coming out of Babylon and they're, and they're kind of, uh, they're kind of having a recovery program as they move into Israel or back into the land and they want to get it right. And so immediately, once again, they go to membership. But I want you to hear this, that, that God's community in Isaiah is being set now as one of inclusion rather than exclusion. So hear what Isaiah says. I know I'm re reading a lot of scripture this morning, but this is so good, and I don't want you to miss, miss it. Isaiah says to them when it comes to the inclusion of membership, he says, Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Now listen, I've got to say this. When you hear this word righteousness, whenever I read it, I always remember the definition. This is one definition I heard. It's called restorative justice. When you ever hear righteousness, think of God's restorative justice. 
So he says, salvation is close at the hand and righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Now hear this. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from His people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give them my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. So here Moses is saying, the eunuchs, the, the ones who have distorted genitalia are no longer allowed to be part of the community. But then the prophet Isaiah comes and says, welcome eunuchs. Welcome to the party. This is God's favor for you. And then he says this. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and all who fold, hold fast to My covenant. So now, Isaiah is welcoming the foreigner. God is uprooting exclusivism and He is rebuilding a community of inclusivism. Notice that at the heart of what allows them to be included in the community is something that we discussed last week. Sabbath. That what allows those that once were previously excluded from God's community and, and now through Isaiah are included is Sabbath. That as we worship together, everyone is called to the assembly of God to come and to worship the one true God. Nobody will be left out. So, these are Jesus' harsh words to the people. Now they're getting to the point to say, how dare you let these people in here? These scoundrels, these losers, these Gentiles. Next thing you know, hell's going to be burning in here thanks to you. But I love what Jesus says. He talks about it. Elijah who was sent to the woman with, with just a few sticks. We talked about this lady. We, the sermon was entitled A Few Sticks. This lady's about to die. She has just a, a little bit of kindling to make one last meal so her and her son can go and die together. This was in a time where there was this severe famine. And Elijah doesn't go to the Israelites. He goes to a widow. Then we have Elisha who is sent not to the Israelites who have sores and leprosy, but to the commander Naaman of the enemy army. That Elisha is sent to the enemy to heal him. This is a guy who probably oppressed the Israelites. Is now receiving God's healing, restorative justice. And so here's what I love. We can quickly read over the whole text without noticing this, this underlying tone. That, that as he talks about the prophets, he talks about them being sent. There's this sentness to the text. And I love that the language, it says, it, it was, they, in, your, in your text, it would say, it was sent. Now we connect these two words, and in the Greek, it's pronounced empathy. Which in the English, it sounds a lot like empathy. I love his thought that in sentness to the people that aren't God's people, these are the ones that are on the receiving end of God's empathy, His compassion, His love, and His justice. 
And these are the people that we would least expect. These are all the wrong people. And so that's why I love what Jessica read to us this morning from from Jeremiah, that, that God today, I appoint you over the nations and kingdoms to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah is proclaiming this to the Israelites But Jesus is fulfilling this to all nations. What what Jeremiah proclaims, Jesus is now doing amongst all people. And so it's in the the tearing down of these outdated practices. And it's in the uprooting of the self-preservative systems that Jesus inaugurates hope for all people. So here's what I want you to know this morning. I'm not done yet. I still have ten minutes. Here's what I want you to know this morning. God revealed through Jesus is an inclusive God, not an exclusive God. The kingdom of Jesus revealed and offered to all people is wholly complete, not something for just the elite. Jesus' salvation is not grudgingly limited, but altruistically limitless. I would say that many of us would say in theory that yes, Jesus' salvation is for all people. But we just don't like what it looks like in the church. We just don't. It's interesting, Janelle and I were driving the other day. I'm going somewhere with this. Janelle and I were driving the other day and she said, why is it that Nazarene churches are small? Why do we not have any mega Nazarene churches? We do. They're just not in America. It's a good question. And I had two thoughts to that. Now, you may disagree with this. That's okay to be wrong. Uh, just kidding. I, I think I am wrong on this one. Uh, but I think about this. There was a Methodist movement. Now, we're going to do a quick history lesson, so stay with me. In the Methodist movement, there was a man named John Wesley that, that our faith comes out of. And John Wesley was extremely concerned with social justice. But quickly over time, the Methodist church began to move from the inner city where there were kind of poor and marginalized people, where people were needing help, to the more wealthier suburbs where the elite, the power, the money, and all that was. They were kind of moving out of the city, away from the needy. This is the danger for the church, is to become the, the powerful, the money-hungry, the, the big, massive, extravagant churches that, that move into the suburbs. Away from the city. And now that's not to say people in suburbs don't have problems. I get that. But I'm telling you, when you get in the mess of the city, you'll see problems. And so the Methodist church began to move away from this. And our founding father, Phineas Brzee, was a part of the Methodist church. And he said this. He said he kind of had a growing disdain for the Methodist church because of their moving out. And he felt like, it is time for me to move back into the city, to move and to minister more freely among the poor. So I love this thought that that our church comes out of comes out of, of this movement, not necessarily of come to this Bible study, but rather we are a people who are going to minister to those who need God the most. We will be outside the walls of the church. We will be in our community. And we will be ministering to people by meeting their basic needs. This is how the church in the Nazarene started. 
It was a movement. This is how Methodism started. It was a movement of people caring for people. Rather than, hey, come to my church and to a Bible study. We can sit around and talk about Jesus. It was about moving into the community. But here's the other reason why I think, in many ways, we as a Nazarene church, I just be honest, I don't think we're doing so hot. I think we've got some things wrong, and here's why. We have lost our missional identity. We can look at Methodism and say, well, you moved out of the inner city to the, away from the poor and to the wealthy. But our problem is this. We look a lot like the Israelites. Here, our identity is rooted in justice, but for many of us, it's also rooted in purity. Many of you hear these words, holiness and entire sanctification in our church, over and over and over again. Nobody can tell you what they are, I promise you that. But we claim to be holy. We claim to be sanctified. But the problem is, is over the years, the church has moved from caring to the poor to an identity of social conservatism. Here's what I mean. That for me growing up in the church, we were defined not so much by what we did, but by what we didn't do. We didn't smoke. We didn't drink. We didn't, we didn't go to parties. We didn't wear makeup. We didn't wear, you know, revealing clothing. We didn't do any of those things. And somehow, as we followed this checklist of rules, somehow that made us holy. Somehow that was the, uh, the, the essential root of holiness or sanctification. That as long as I don't do these things, then, then I'm good with God. And so really the movement, and I'm not blaming holiness and sanctification, but I kind of am. We've become so focused on purity that we are excluding ourselves and other people. And here's what I mean. We are so focused on our own purity that we don't want to be around the wrong people. We are afraid to be around the wrong people. Now listen, there were some of you, listen, you've had addictions with alcohol. You should not be in a bar with people. But there are some of us who would say that, that God is moving in our community and, and, and in the midst of places that none of us would ever go to. So my question is, if God is there, why aren't we? We've got to keep holiness. We've got to keep purity. We can't defile ourselves. Lord, help us. But here's the other thought I have about why we're not a mega church. Here's the hope. I think in many ways, our church is rediscovering its missional identity again. That there are a bunch of young pastors and young theologians. When I say young, I don't know, whatever, 50 and under, uh, 60 and under, whatever you want. We're all young in God's eyes, I suppose. Um, there's this movement of people who are saying, as I'm saying, holiness we've got wrong. That at the root of holiness, it is loving God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. But it's also about loving our neighbor. And so here's the, here's the thing, that as we gain our missional identity, we will be attracting all the wrong people. And let me tell you, when you begin to attract all the wrong people, it requires a lot of time, investment. It requires you being uncomfortable. And there are a lot of qualifiers in the church. I often hear there are qualifiers. On, and this proves to me that why, we're, why we are so... Exclusionary. 
We use things like, well, did you know so-and-so came high to church today? Yeah. And your point? Did you see so-and-so got wasted last night? Or they were drunk in church? And? I can't believe so-and-so did this on Facebook. You know, they blah, 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 blah. Whatever. Did you know they only give this much? So what? I want a church full of hypocrites. I want a bunch of people who can't get it right, who are striving to get it right. I want a bunch of people who are messed up because that's who we are. We are messed up people. But somehow when we when we dive into the purity of, of holiness and sanctification, we forget that we are still messed up too. We've been freed from sin, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that we need to exclude ourselves from those who are still struggling with it. Do you hear me on this? Are you with me? Come on, somebody say amen out there. Whew. I want you to hear this from our church this morning. I don't know if we have it up on the slides, but I guess my point being this is I don't think our church will ever become humongous and massive because it'll be unattractively attractive. Imperfectly imperfect, right? Well, whoever did, very good line, whoever said that. So I want to read you this. And I don't read you this because I like reading to you, but I read you this because this is my favorite part of our manual. There's a lot of things I don't like about our manual. It's, it's exhausting to read. Um, but I do love this part. Listen to what our manual says. Do we have this? Do we have, no, we don't have it? Now, this is referring to holiness and sanctification. Hear me now. If you haven't listened so far, listen to this. The Church of the Nazarene believes that, that, that this new and holy way of life involved practices to be avoided and redemptive acts of love to be accomplished for the souls, minds, and bodies of our neighbors. One redemptive arena of love involves the special relationship Jesus had and commanded his disciples to have with the poor of this world. That his church ought first to keep itself, listen to this, simple and free from the emphasis on wealth and extravagance. And second, to give itself to the care, feeding, clother, and shelter of the poor and marginalized. Throughout the Bible and in life of the Jesus example, God identifies with and assists the poor, oppressed, and those in the society who cannot speak for themselves. Now listen, in the same way, in the same way, we too are called to identify with and to enter into solidarity with the poor. We hold that compassionate ministry to the poor includes acts of charity, and I love this part, as well as a struggle to provide opportunity and equality and justice for the poor. We further believe that the Christian responsibility to the poor, uh, excuse me, I lost my spot here, is this, yes, we further believe the Christian responsibility of the poor is an essential aspect of life of every believer who seeks faith that works through love. Now listen, for those of you who think I don't care about sanctification and holiness. We believe Christian holiness, we believe entire sanctification to be inseparable from ministry to the poor. And that it drives the Christian beyond their own individual perfection <laughs> and toward the creation of a more just and equitable society and world. Holiness, far more from distancing believers from the desperate economic needs of the people in this world, motivates us to place our means in the service of alleviating such need. 
and to adjust our wants in accordance with the needs of others. Now, I, I know that's long. You can look it up today. Uh, 28.3, paragraph 28.3, responsibility to the poor. I say all this, I share all this with you to say this. As a community of hope, as God's people, we are to be an inclusive people. That as God's people, we not only strive for purity, also strive for justice. Israel's God came to save all the wrong people. And guess what? You are all the wrong people. I am all the wrong people. Everybody out there, they're all the wrong people. So I leave you with this question. Who are all the wrong people in your life? If you can answer that question, that's where your mission starts. Who are all the wrong people? That's where you are sent. And God's empathy, your empathy, compassion, love, and restorative justice is given to those who need it. This is the word of the Lord. God's grace and Peace, while with you, and you with you. Amen. Amen.